morning everyone at home. A little disappointed that we couldn't be here together this morning, but Lord's in control, right? He's on the throne and so he he had different plans for us this morning. If you're if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series on Titus this morning, almost to the end. And we're going to be reading this morning from Titus 3, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word that instructs us, that convicts us, that comforts us, that trains us in righteousness. Thank you that you haven't left us on our own to navigate the the waves of this world without instructions from your word. And more than that, Lord, thank you for your word and your spirit that causes your word to come alive in our minds. It opens our eyes to see the truth of who you are and softens our hearts so that the word would go down deep and bear much fruit. And that's my prayer this morning, Father, that your word would bear fruit in our lives this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. On December 20th, 1987, a 10-year-old boy died in his parents' home in Washington State from untreated juvenile diabetes. His parents were part of a church, a Christian-based group, that believed, among other things, that the use of conventional medical treatment represented a lack of trust in God, and even more, that serious health problems were the result of unrepentant sin. Within three months of this tragic and devastating 
experience, the group, which had nearly 300 adult mem members spread over four states, had completely disbanded. And within a year, both the boy's father and two senior leaders from the church were in prison. I know about these events, be these events because my family was part of this group. And in early 1988, with a four-year-old son, me, along with my two two-year-old twin brothers and a set of another set of twins on the way, my parents left the home and the community that they had built their lives around in Illinois and moved to New York to North Carolina to start over. They were depressed, disillusioned, confused, and broken, as were many from the group and the consequences of that experience are still reverberating through our family more than 30 years later why am I telling you this story there's a danger with this kind of extreme illustration many of you are probably appalled disgusted even angered by this story, and rightly so. We tend to view this kind of situation as something that evil people out there have done, but not something that we could ever or would ever be involved in. But the reason I'm telling you this story is because it is a stark and sobering example of what can happen when we allow secondary things to become entangled with and equal to the core message of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. See, this group did not start out as a bunch of wackos and nutjobs. In fact, they wouldn't have looked very different from the people that gather at Brandywine Grace every Sunday. Mostly college-educated, middle and upper middle class, students, young adults, young families. Many had been radically saved out of the drug and sex-fueled hippie culture of the 60s and 70s. They were zealous, they were passionate about Jesus, and they were zealous to live out the kind of radical gospel community that they saw described in the book of Acts. But over the 10 years that led up to this tragic moment, they experience precisely what Paul has been warning against throughout the book of Titus. They have the wrong leaders, immature, untrained, untested men, who were with no accountability and no grounding in the historical teachings of the church and the faith and the doctrine of grace. And over time, they started teaching the wrong things. And they subtly and progressively corrupted the gospel by adding other things, often even good things, to it. Healthy diet and fitness. Avoiding worldly entertainment. The way people dressed, the way their children acted, the way they decorated their homes, where they went on vacation. All of these things became not just ways that the gospel shaped their thoughts and actions, but they became specific, defining qualifications for what it meant to be a true believer. And in their zeal, 
even though many had questions and doubts along the way about the things that they were doing, their followers faithfully applied this corrupted doctrine until the gospel that they had started out believing was totally unrecognizable. And as a result, the way that they related to one another and to the world became twisted, distorted, and dangerous. Which brings us, I think, to Paul's main point in the passage we're looking at this morning. Gospel transformation must define the rules of our cultural engagement. Gospel transformation defines the rules of cultural engagement. Or to put it a little bit differently, the kindness and mercy that we've received in Jesus must govern the way we relate to the world. And I think there are two categories that Paul gives us here for what it looks like for the gospel to shape and define our cultural engagement. The first is gospel humility, and the second is gospel priority. We might think of these as the what and how of a gospel-shaped cultural engagement. Gospel priorities are the what, gospel humility is the how. We're going to start with gospel humility because that's where Paul starts. Look at verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul is describing a posture here of humility, gentleness, kindness, and courtesy that should characterize the way in which we act towards and interact with the culture around us. He's not even primarily talking about those in the church, although I think it's, it absolutely applies there. But listen, look at the language. Rulers and authorities, these are people outside of the church. Speak evil of no one. That's a blanket statement. And show perfect courtesy towards all people in the church, outside of the church. And I want to be sure that we don't miss the context here. Because Paul is writing at a time when rulers and authorities, as well as the broader culture, were not particularly friendly towards Christians. He is likely writing after 64 AD, which if you know anything about early church history, the Emperor Nero is ruling in Rome. That's a name that you're probably familiar with. In 64 AD, there was a massive fire in Rome that devastated the city. And uh, speculation started, rumors started to, to uh, churn in the city that Nero was actually the one responsible for the fire. There's no evidence to support that, but that's what people started to say. And so Nero, in order to protect himself started spreading his own rumors that Christians were the ones who were responsible. And because the culture wasn't particularly fond of Christians, people were very happy to believe that rumor, and they were a very easy scapegoat. And as a result, the Roman government started systematically rounding up hundreds of Christians, torturing them and killing them, many torn apart by wild animals, others burned on crosses in Nero's garden. These are the rulers and authorities and the culture that Paul has in mind when he's, when he's calling the church to perfect submission, to perfect courtesy, towards obedience, towards kindness. Now the question we should naturally be asking is, why? 
why in the world would Paul tell people in to be submissive, kind, gentle, and courteous towards a culture that's hostile and antagonistic towards Christians? Shouldn't they be fighting for their rights as Roman citizens? Shouldn't they be contending against the pagan culture that was seeking to destroy them? Well, Paul gives us the answer, verse 3. For this is the reason why we should be acting this way. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, friends, it would be hard to find a clearer description of the current state of our culture than this. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But, Paul continues, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us! Us, church! He saved us! Arrogant, ignorant, lustful, hateful, blind, boastful, idolatrous, gluttonous, miserable sinners that we were. He saved us! Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you believe that, church? Can you believe what God did for you and me? and for all those who have put their trust in him for salvation. And if you're listening to this message and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, this is what he wants to do for you. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own, according to his own mercy. Well, I get it now, Paul. I see. How how could I possibly be indignant and self-righteous towards people around me who are lost and enslaved to sin? That's exactly the condition I was in apart from Christ. How could I possibly be shocked by a culture around me that's hostile towards God, that's, that's how, exactly how I was before God opened my eyes and changed my heart. How could I become angry and antagonistic when other people's sin cost me some inconvenience or discomfort when my sin cost Jesus everything? See, friends, this is the posture of gospel humility. And I'm not pretending for one second that it's easy or that it doesn't come at a cost. 
But I would submit to you that it is exactly what our culture needs from us right most right now. Everyone is angry about something right now. You only have to spend five minutes scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or cable news to know that. Some people are angry that they have to wear masks. Other people are angry that some people refuse to wear masks. People are angry about politics for every reason from every perspective. Some people are angry about racial injustice. Some people are angry that people are angry about racial injustice. And just because it seems like there's not enough to be angry about, some people are just making up lies and spreading falsehoods and conspiracy theories just to give people something else to be angry about. We are passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And church... Sadly, Christians are not immune from this. I'll be very frank with you. As a pastor of this church, I've been troubled by the things that Christians, including some from Brandywine Grace, are posting and sharing on social media. And I want to be really, really clear here. I believe that it is totally possible for Christians to have different perspectives, opinions, and opinions about politics, about how best to respond to COVID-19, about how best to respond to issues of racial and economic injustice. And we'll go deeper on this in just a minute when we talk about gospel priorities. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't engage in these discussions or these issues. They're important issues. But how we engage is just as important and even more important in some cases than what we specifically believe about any of these issues. The world does not need our indignation. It doesn't need our snarky memes or clever tweets. And it certainly doesn't need our self-righteous judgments. The world needs Jesus, church. And gospel humility is one of the means by which we can actually open the door to bring Jesus into a culture that's dominated by hate, contempt, and anger. Gospel humility creates opportunities for gospel proclamation. And my appeal for all of us is that we would be regularly evaluating how the way we think, speak, and engage with our culture, both in person and on social media, reflect the unmerited kindness, mercy, and grace we've received in Jesus. Let's talk now about gospel priorities. In the early morning hours of May 1st, 2011, 25 Navy SEALs loaded into two Black Hawk helicopters and took off from a military base in Afghanistan. Their mission, which is now well-documented, was to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. The mission had been painstakingly planned for months, with every detail being rehearsed and refined. 
Every uncertainty being analyzed against decades of military experience and state-of-the-art technological expertise. Every risk being mitigated as much as humanly possible by contingencies and redundancies. And this was arguably one of the most important and high-profile military missions in modern U.S. history. And by almost every measurement, at least in terms of the objectives they set out to accomplish, the mission was a resounding success. Now I want you to imagine that you're one of those 25 Navy SEALs sitting in the Black Hawk helicopter on your way into Pakistan. And suddenly, Roger, sitting next to you, calls out to Brad sitting across the helicopter. Hey, Brad, I saw you put a Ron Paul sticker on your car the other day. Now remember, we're in 2011, okay? It's a long time ago. He continues. You know, that guy's a real nut job. I thought you'd be smarter than to support someone like that. Brad stiffens up, looks Roger in the eyes. Well, Roger, I'd rather be a nut job than a Democrat commie traitor. Well, then Mike jumps in to Roger's defense, and then Damien jumps in supporting Brad, and within a few minutes, the entire helicopter is engaged in an all-out fist fight over their opinions about presidential candidates. Now, how likely do you think it would have been that this mission would be successful if this is the condition that SEAL Team 6 showed up in at Bin Laden's compound. Low likelihood of success. And when the military chain of command, not to mention the American people, found out why the mission had failed, they would be, we would be, rightly outraged, probably. Now, this is obviously an extreme and a little bit absurd example. What's the point? When you have a clear and important mission to accomplish, you can't let secondary things, no matter how important they are, distract from what's most important. And this is what I think Paul is getting at in the last few verses of this section. If we have come into relationship with Jesus, we've received a new identity. We saw that in verse 7. We are heirs, part of God's family. And we have received a clear mission from our new commander, Jesus. What's the mission? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples, right? You know, the, you know how that goes. That's our mission as followers of Jesus. And how do we do that? With the message of the gospel. We have a new identity, a clear mission, and a powerful message. And Paul wants to be sure that nothing creeps in to corrupt the message or sidetrack the mission. He wants us to be fruitful and effective in our call to make disciples, to spread the fame of Jesus. And we can't do that if we're divided and distracted. So how do we avoid being divided and distracted? Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What are these things? The essential 
message of the gospel. That's the trustworthy saying. You saw that in the beginning of verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. What saying? It's what he just laid out in verses 3 through 7 as in terms of the essential message of the gospel. This saying is trustworthy. This is the essential message and truth of the gospel. Combined with what? Good works. The truth of the, of the gospel expressed practically in love for neighbor. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. These things are excellent and profitable. What does that mean? These are the things that lead to health, effectiveness, and fruitfulness. So what will keep us from being healthy effective and fruitful. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You see the parallel language here, right? These things, the essential message of the gospel, faith working through love, are excellent and profitable. These things Foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels, they are worthless and unprofitable. Now I want to pause here and talk about what this means practically. The language that Paul is using here is very broad. Foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. These are, this is very general and broad language. So what does this mean in practice? Remember, Paul's concern is that we don't allow the essential message of the gospel to become corrupted by taking secondary things and making them equal to or more important than the gospel. So how does that actually happen? One of the main ways that this happens is when we act as though a particular belief or practice regarding an issue of Christian liberty... That's something that the Bible hasn't given clear instructions about. That our particular belief is the only right way to view it, to view that particular issue. Or we could say it differently. We say that in order to be a true Christian, you have to believe something or do something that Scripture hasn't given clear instructions on. Remember the example that I started with. Is it good to have a healthy diet and to exercise? Yes. Does the Bible teach that you have to eat or exercise in a certain way in order to be a true believer? No. Does the Bible teach that we should be careful about the influence of worldliness in our lives? Yes. Does the Bible teach that in order to be a true believer, you can't watch any secular TV or movies? We distort the gospel when we elevate our personal views to the level of God's authority. Jonathan Lehman, who's a pastor down in the Washington, D.C. area, tells a story of um, interacting with a friend who had strong political views. And he asks him whether Jesus would fully endorse his views on tax policy and health care. He asked almost as a joke, but the guy shot back with an immediate, Yes! Lehman continues, Confusing our judgments with God's turns our judgments into idols, which in turn divides the church. And church, I am genuinely concerned about the way in which we are allowing political parties, cable news, 
and social media to shape the priorities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in 2020 in the United States of America. The fact is that both political parties are very happy to sell us a narrative in which the other side is 100% wrong, dangerous, and evil. Both parties believe and speak as though the other side is destroying the United States of America and the only way to save our country is to fight back the evil forces opposing. And sadly, many Christians have been all too happy to accept these narratives. See, there are biblical principles and even gospel principles that should shape and inform how we approach questions of racial and economic injustice, tax policy, government authority, how we respond to something like COVID-19, and even who we vote for in any particular election. The Bible gives us principles to inform our thinking on these topics. It does not prescribe specific practices or policies. And when we elevate our judgments to the level of God's authority... We make idols of our judgments and divide the church. It takes the hard work of Christian discernment to think through, reason through, and pray through how God's word should shape our thinking on political, social, economic issues of the day. And the political parties are not going to do that work for us. At best, the political parties give us their agenda for what they think is best for the country. In reality, they give us what they think is going to probably galvanize the most support from their voters and donors. At worst, and church, this is happening right now all over Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, cable news, at worst, agents of political ideology are spreading outright lies and intentionally manipulated half-truths in order to create division and perpetuate the idea that the other side is dangerous and evil. This doesn't represent God's agenda. It doesn't represent God's priorities. And we should have nothing to do with it. And I want to give some specific application here. If we are simply sharing and reposting something on social media because it supports our political views without checking whether it's actually true, church, we're in dangerous ground. Because there are plenty of people who would happily spread outright lies to support particular political views. We need to hear Paul's warning here. If we are telling lies, even unintentionally, through what we post and share on social media, in order to stir up division, church, God's word says that we are warped and sinful. We need to remember the gospel. Thoughtful, gospel-loving believers 
can and will come to different conclusions on the best way to apply biblical principles in any given political situation. One believer may see the Bible's call to care for the poor and provide justice for those who are oppressed and conclude that certain policies in the democratic platform that promote equitable access to education or health care are an expression of biblical justice. Others may argue that it's not the role of the government to address these issues or that these aren't the best policies to accomplish those goals. We should be able to discuss those things in the church, to reason from the scriptures and to listen to one another with humility. And I'm thankful for the opportunities I've had to do that with some of you. But the only way we can do that is if we keep the gospel as our first priority. Not the gospel plus the American dream. Not the gospel plus the Republican or Democratic Party. Not the gospel plus the U.S. Constitution. If it's anything but the essential truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will fight and divide over things that we should not divide over. Friends, how can we enjoy genuine fellowship with our brother or sister sitting across the aisle or sitting in the house next door in this case? If we genuinely believe that they're evil and dangerous simply because of their political affiliation. And yes, church, there are people who sit across the aisle from you, at least when we're sitting in the same place, that have different political views than you. And how can we genuinely love our unbelieving neighbor if we think that their biggest problem is their political views? This is what Paul means when he talks about foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels. If we are more concerned about arguing or promoting our particular views on any secondary issue, politics, education, masks, vaccines, social justice, whatever it is, which Star Wars movie is the best? I don't know. I'm sure there's all kinds of weird stuff out there. If we're more concerned about promoting our own particular views than we are about helping people see their need for Jesus, then we are in danger of corrupting the gospel. And please hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that we shouldn't talk about these issues or that they aren't important. But the gospel must shape how we talk about them. That's gospel humility. And it must put them in the right priority. Because here's the reality. If the world looks at us and only sees us arguing about our particular political views, they will conclude that to be a Christian means to have these political views. And when that happens the gospel has been corrupted and our witness has become unprofitable and worthless. Ask the band to come back. You guys can come on up. I know that I'm, I'm laying in pretty hard here. And to a certain degree, I'm speaking with some broad generalizations. My intention is not to condemn anyone or to lay a broad judgment or a guilt trip on you. 
I know, I know that, that people, people are thinking and, and interacting about these things in a lot of different ways, and I know that many of you are seeking to bring the gospel to bear on how you're thinking and interacting over these issues. But at the same time, I see what's happening on social media. I see what's happening in our culture, and none of us can simply avoid the realities of division, animosity, and hatred that are fueling so much of the public discourse right now. We can't escape that. And at the same time, I hear Paul's command to Titus, which comes to me as a pastor of this church, insist on these things, and even to warn some. So I'm insisting this morning, church, because of God's immeasurable grace towards us. Please do not allow foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels that are tearing apart our culture to corrupt our gospel message and our gospel witness. Friends, my burden this morning, and I, I feel a strong burden, because I believe it's what Paul's burden was when he wrote this, and I believe that it's God's burden for all of us who are listening to his word preached this morning. My burden is that the Church of Jesus Christ broadly and Brandywine Grace specifically would be the kind of city on a hill that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. That the light of the gospel would shine through our good words and our good works to a culture that's lost, broken, and devastated by sin. And that through us, our words, our actions, our posts on social media, and even the way in which we engage in public discourse, that the world would see the radical, countercultural, earth-shattering, world-changing mercy and kindness of Jesus. For His glory. your grace towards us is without measure boundless, free I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by the reality of what you've done for us that it would shape and color and form the way that we interact with the, our world a world that's broken that's devastated by sin, that's enslaved to passions and pleasures, that is passing their days in envy and malice, hating one another and hated by one another. That in that darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kindness and mercy that you've shown towards us, would shine brightly. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit. We can't do that on our own. There's no way we can accomplish that on our own. We need your help, and I know that you desire to give it to us. Thank you for your word that instructs us, that instructs us this morning. I pray that it would be fruitful.